It was an uneventful voyage so far in September 1903. Captain White was steering his tugboat after a trip to Dublin. In the distance, a small dot on the horizon appeared. It was Longship's lighthouse welcoming him to Cornwall. But as his boat cut through the familiar water, it started to wobble, as though the wake of another vessel had knocked it off kilter. But White found it strange that another boat could have made the wake from so far away. Then, as he later reported to the local paper, the Falmouth Packet, he saw what had made the wave, except he wasn't sure what exactly he was seeing. It looked like a massive serpent, almost a hundred feet long, with two long tusks protruding from its mouth like a walrus. It tore through the water a good distance away from the boat. Captain White was flummoxed. He'd heard of this sea creature. Twenty-six years ago, two fishermen had claimed to have a run-in with a beast like this. The captain had always assumed it was an old wives' tale. But now, he was forced to ask himself a question that many sailors would contend with over the years. Are these monstrous sea serpents real? And if so, how many are out there? Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our lone episode on Morguar, a mysterious sea serpent often spotted off the southwestern shores of England's county Cornwall. While hoaxers and fraudsters had faked sightings, there are more curious accounts going back over a century. This time, we'll discuss the various encounters throughout history. Then, we'll meet the self-declared Wizard of the West, who attempted to summon the creature during a magical ceremony and may have captured it on camera. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, 
What is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. In April 1876, two veteran fishermen set out from Jarens Bay in County Cornwall, England. They believed this would be a routine haul, so they stocked their ship with the usual supplies, crab pots, dip nets, rope, bait, all the essentials. Then they set out. It was a clear day, and the seamen enjoyed the smooth sailing. They spent hours filling their nets with fresh fish and crabs until something got in their way. The fishermen had dropped a pot into the water to capture crustaceans. It was attached to a floater to mark its location. But when the seamen checked on the floater, they saw a strange creature coiled around it. It looked like a snake, and when the sailors drew near, it lifted its head and glared at them. Details are sparse, but something about its demeanor felt intimidating to the fishermen. Rather than tangle with the sea beast, one man lifted his oar and smashed it on the creature's head. The strike stunned the monster, who unwound from the floater and slumped into the water, dazed. By the time the fishermen finished hauling in their nets and crab pots, it's possible hours had passed. They may have forgotten the monster entirely if it wasn't still floating, unconscious, in the waters near their boat. Eager to learn more about the mysterious creature, they hauled it ashore. On the rocks, they got a better look at the beast, determining it was an enormous sea monster measuring over 20 feet long. It was dark gray with rough skin and two humps that ran along its back. The sailors had never seen anything like it. As they moved in to take a closer look, it's possible they awakened the slumbering serpent. If so, the monster likely began thrashing, trying to free itself. Its long, bulky tail whipped back and forth, fighting against whatever ropes or netting the seamen had used to drag it onto the beach. We're not sure exactly what happened, but for some reason, the fishermen ended up attacking the creature. It's possible they first attempted to restrain the beast, but it was too strong for them to hold in the net. Perhaps as they fought, one of the men may have gotten his ankle caught in the ropes, putting him in a dangerous situation. The creature could lunge at the fishermen at any moment. To save their lives, one sailor grabbed one of the oars from his boat and slammed it down on the monster's head. The beast slumped on the sand, dead. By now, a crowd had gathered. People gawked at the mysterious sea beast, wondering aloud what it might be. But instead of preserving it for study, the fishermen cast the monster back out into the murky water. Now, even as early as 1876, elusive sea creatures weren't exactly a new phenomenon. Scotland's most famous sea inhabitant, Nessie, had already been fascinating audiences and mystifying marine scientists for nearly a thousand years. But this was the first time a similar sea creature had been sighted near Cornwall in England. And because of that, Morgwar, as the beast would come to be called, became a phenomenon in his own right. For true believers, Morgwar is commonly described in more modern sightings as black or gray, between 15 to 22 feet long, with a small head, a gooseneck, 
and two humps on his back. He's been notably spotted at the entrance of the Helford River between Rosemullion Head and Toll Point. This is on a peninsula near the southwestern corner of the county. He's earned that small strip of sea, the pet name Morgwar's Mile. And since that first sighting in 1876, the public has been gripped by the idea that Cornwall might be home to an otherworldly, maybe even prehistoric, breed of sea serpent. He was next seen 26 years later in 1903. Captain White spotted him about 15 miles off the coast of the southwestern tip of Great Britain. The nearby port town of Falmouth is a small Cornish town that later became a hotbed of Morgwar activity. The local paper, the Falmouth Packet, did a write-up on White's experience, creating a local stir. After this, Cornwall wouldn't have to wait another 26 years to see the creature again. In fact, the next sighting took place a mere three years later, in 1906. This time, as a passenger boat sailed from Antwerp to New York, two American officers and a passenger saw a, quote, wonderful sea serpent. They also reported the sighting to the Falmouth packet. As the packet reported, quote, the reptile's head has a fierce and forbidding aspect, with rows of huge teeth on its powerful jaws. With two sightings in three years, the public became fascinated by this elusive sea creature. Spectators lined the shores of Cornwall, eager to catch a glimpse of the serpent. But sadly, he went back into hiding for 20 years until May 1926. That's when two experienced seamen, Mr. B. Reese and Mr. B. Gilbert, set sail from the south coast for a day of fishing. Much like the first fishermen to see Margoire, they caught the monster in their net. But instead of trying to run the beast ashore, they spent more than an hour wrestling him onto the deck of their boat. Finally, they dragged it aboard. This sea monster was different from the one earlier fishermen had described. It had four limbs, an eight-foot tail, and a wide back covered in brown fur as though a sea snake had mated with a sea lion. The men were slack-jawed and unsure of what to do. They debated whether they should try to haul the animal to dry land or toss it overboard. As they argued, the creature sprang to life and heaved itself over the side of the ship. But just before it managed to escape, the beast left a tuft of fur and a splotch of blood on the deck. Reese and Gilbert brought the samples back to their hometown for further examination. They submitted the samples to the local Plymouth Marine Biological Observatory, a research lab specializing in the study of marine life. But the team of scientists weren't able to provide any conclusive findings. To this day, we can't be sure of what Reese and Gilbert caught. But the locals already had their answer. The public could have been convinced that the men had captured the same sea creature others saw in 1903 and 1906. The legend of this mysterious sea creature was growing, even though he wasn't seen again until the summer of 1934. But this time, he was spotted from shore. Four beachgoers were sunning themselves at Whitson Bay, west of Falmouth, 
when they saw a 10-foot-long serpent in the water. They said it looked like a big viper snake, but crawled through the water like a caterpillar, which was different from what previous witnesses described. Nevertheless, word of the sighting spread like wildfire. Until this point, Morgwar had only been spotted by fishermen far out at sea. But now, as tourists camped on beaches around Cornwall, they might catch a glimpse of the sea monster. But while the legend of Morgwar fascinated many, the growing myth and the discrepancies in accounts made others doubt whether any of these sightings were legitimate. Maybe people's eyes were playing tricks on them. Or perhaps they were making it up completely. Coming up, a potential first intentional Morgwar hoax. They say time heals all wounds, but sometimes time can do anything but. Welcome to Cold Cases, the new Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Carter Roy. Every Monday, join me as I revisit the clues and miscues of some of the most elusive criminal cases in history. From burglary and arson to kidnappings and murder, each episode of Cold Cases explores the many types of crime, the many ways they remain unsolved, and how long it takes to find the answers, if ever. Will justice be served? Only time will tell. Follow Cold Cases free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. For the first 100 years of Morgwar's alleged existence, several people publicly reported their sightings. They didn't have concrete proof of what they saw, but at the very least, it seemed everyone was acting in good faith. But over the years, stories of Morgwar began to blend together or get bigger in the retelling until the creature became closer to myth than an unexplained phenomenon. So, naturally, it was only a matter of time before someone tried to pull off a Morgwar hoax. This may have happened in the spring of 1976, the 100th anniversary of the beast's first sighting. That March, the Falmouth Packet received two photographs, supposedly of the legendary sea monster. There was an accompanying letter, cryptically signed Mary F. In her letter, Mary F. claimed she'd snapped these pictures on a nearby coast. She said the monster was about 18 feet long and absolutely terrifying. The way it moved through the water unnerved her, and she had no desire to wade in and get a closer look. But the pictures left a lot to be desired. They depicted the thick, dark outline of an animal against a hazy background. There was nothing to give an idea of scale or distance from shore. 
They could have been pictures of Morgoire, but they could just as easily have been a miniature model floating in a bathtub. So instead of proving Morgoire existed, many questioned whether Mary F. was even a real person. Hoax or not, publications around the UK ran the photos, creating a buzz. Regardless of whether people believed in the sea monster, it was fun to talk about and stayed in the news all summer. This may be why Morgoire sightings were reported every few weeks. It became a cycle. People saw the creature, then it would wind up back in the news, causing more people to miraculously see the monster. In July 1976, two fishermen from Falmouth reported seeing a serpent near Lizard Point, the southernmost tip of the UK mainland. They said the beast had, quote, a great head like an enormous seal. Meanwhile, at nearby Parsons Beach, two bankers claimed to see a pair of creatures lolling in the sea. That was the first time two monsters were spotted at once. And while it made believers even more excited, skeptics were critical of these so-called sightings. That's when a colorful character stepped in, claiming he could prove the existence of Morgwar. His name was Tony Doc Shields, a self-described Wizard of the West. Shields was a spirited magician and showman. He got his start in Cornwall as a member of the Penwith Society of Arts, a group for modern and abstract creators. He'd spent the past few decades honing his craft. And along the way, he became a savvy businessman, always quick to make a buck. Shields is actually the person who named Morgoire, which is a Cornish word aptly meaning sea creature. Christening the serpent legitimized him, just like with Nessie up in Scotland. And with the name came the so-called Morgoire mania. Tourists poured in from all over the UK, eager to be part of the fun. When Tony Shields saw how profitable the creature could be, he was quick to capitalize. In July, he teamed up with Professor Michael McCormick, a self-declared renowned dragon hunter. We're not sure what that means, but together, these men promised to use the powers of wizardry to lure Morgoire from the water, proving his existence. And because Shields understood the art of showmanship, he advertised that a team of beautiful and completely naked witches would be part of the spectacle. He then revealed the witches were actually his adult daughters. It was a weird detail that officially made this a newsworthy event. All the local stations showed up to cover the offbeat family trying to conjure a sea monster. The morning of the event was cold and hazy, typical of a Welsh summer. Shields was in a long black trench coat, holding a drum and a medieval-looking sword. He stood on the rocky coastline alone, ultimately, and beat the drum imported from New Mexico. Shields looked like he was in a trance. A well-dressed news anchor did his best to translate what was going on, explaining to viewers that Shields was attempting to psychically connect with Margwar. If all went according to plan, the beast would soon rise from the deep and reveal himself on camera. As the ceremony seemed to reach its apex, Shields lifted the gleaming medieval-style sword in the air. 
the crowd looked out over the ocean. But predictably, nothing happened. The news anchor approached Shields and asked him to try one more time. Shields put his hand to his temple and closed his eyes for a moment, then looked up. He told the anchor Margoire had surfaced, but regrettably, it was on the other side of the cliff they were standing on, so they couldn't see him. The anchor feigned sympathy. Shucks, isn't that how it always goes? Interestingly, a day or two later, the Falmouth packet received a photograph, allegedly taken by an anonymous passerby who happened to be on the other side of the cliff where Morgoire surfaced. The photo is grainy and about as convincing as the one submitted by Mary F. So while Shields' believers saw it as proof the monster existed, the image did little to sway any skeptics. It's no wonder Shields suffered intense public scrutiny. He was even accused of being Mary F. Shortly after his failed attempt to summon Morgoire, Shields' wife Christine penned a letter to the Falmouth packet with her own account of a sighting. Christine claimed she'd spotted the serpent from the corner of her eye while on a stroll along Grebe Beach with her family. This beach lies at the tail end of the so-called Morgoire Mile. Christine's recollection was similar to other reports. The creature was enormous, long-necked, and humpbacked. Shields said he also caught a glimpse of Morgoire, but had been reluctant to say so out of fear of not being believed. But then Shields cast doubt on Christine's account, suggesting it was likely a mirage caused by the heat and sun. The only thing that would fully convince him, and the world at large, was a true encounter with Morgoire. While this might seem like a healthy dose of skepticism, many suggested Shields was simply playing to the crowd. By denying Christine's account, he'd seem more credible in the public eye. Either way, Shields seemed resolved to prove Morgoire existed, and he'd soon produce a new piece of evidence. Coming up, Shields tries one more time to prove Margoire's existence. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now back to the story. In 1976, after his public attempt to summon Morgoire failed, the Wizard of the West, Tony Shields, traveled to the mouth of the Helford River. This is in the strip of sea called Morgoire Mile. 
David Clark, an editor at Cornish Life, joined Shields on his journey. He spent most of the trip asking Shields questions and snapping pictures, especially when, according to Clark, he saw what he called a small dot in the water. Something was moving toward them. Clark later testified the creature darted forward and back, getting as close as 60 to 70 feet away before it would lurch back again. Although he could only see part of the beast, there was a trail in the water behind it. This suggested the animal was much longer than the small bit that had surfaced. Clark began taking pictures of this extraordinary sight, but as fate would have it, his camera malfunctioned. The images he managed to capture were double and triple exposed. What little came out showed something peeking out of the water, perhaps a hooked neck. Or maybe this was yet another hoax. Without any solid photos, the only evidence we have of this encounter is testimony from Clark and Shields, the latter of whom suffered a credibility issue. Later, Shields testified, quote, The animal we saw was small by monster standards, no more than 15 feet in length. It had horns, stumpy little things, which Dave saw clearly through his viewfinder. The head was extremely ugly, like a big snail's head with those odd little stalks. Strangely, Clark declined to fully endorse Shields' account of what happened on the trip. He didn't say which specific details he disagreed with, but once again, Shields' credibility was publicly undermined. But naysayers didn't dissuade Shields. As he told the Fortean Times, quote, I've captured the beastie on film. Later in the same statement, Shields actually seemed vindicated in some way. He said, Photographing the animal should give me a certain amount of power according to the standard of magical practice. Though we're not totally sure what that means, it sounds like Shields is happy with what transpired that summer and fall. In fact, Tony Doc Shields benefited greatly from his Morgoire hunt, both financially and in terms of publicity. That is, until the 1990s, when a magazine published transcripts of Shields' taped sessions dating back to 1975, a year before the infamous Mary F. pictures were published. During these self-incriminating recordings, Shields described himself as a born hoaxer, and he laid out a blueprint for his Morgoire scheme. He confessed he planned to trick the general public by convincing them the monster was real. Shields added, quote, Any photographs have to be bad photographs in order to seem authentic. In the 1990s, in true showman fashion, Shields wrote a book titled Monstrum, a tongue-in-cheek account of his monster-conjuring exploits. In the text, Shields contended his deceptive actions were never malicious. But he also shied away from taking full accountability for the role he played in the Morgoire hoax. Instead, he explained the misleading photographs of Morgoire originally belonged to a schoolboy who was the real original prankster. Shields also tried to lay partial blame on the press. He suggested that if the media hadn't tried to make him into a fraud, the focus could have remained on discovering Morgoire. 
Shields shifted blame so quickly his readers got whiplash. He also volleyed between being a believer and skeptic, whichever argument lent him more credibility in the moment. Needless to say, the stunt ruined Shields' reputation, and his family became a laughingstock. For months, they popped up in headlines, always photographed performing weird rituals of one kind or another. They were called the, quote, weirdest family in the land. Tony Shields was mocked as a monster hunter, and his career never recovered. His antics cemented the idea that anything involving Morgwar was a complete hoax. Which is kind of unfair to the people who spotted Morgwar prior to 1976. Those sightings had nothing to do with Tony Shields, and if the witnesses weren't in on the fraud, that suggests they might have spotted something real. Believers speculate the authentic Morgwar dates back to prehistoric times. It's been suggested he's a breed of plesiosaur who survived extinction. The plesiosaur is a semi-aquatic dinosaur with four fins and a long neck. If you can picture the Loch Ness Monster, you know what a plesiosaur looks like. The species evolved at the same time as the coelacanth fish, before disappearing some 65 million years ago. Coelacanths still exist today. They dwell at the bottom of the ocean and have a lifespan of up to 100 years. To many believers, if the coelacanth fish could survive to the modern era, so could the plesiosaur. But Adam Smith, a curator at the Natural Science Museum at Nottingham, dismissed this possibility. He explained, unlike the coelacanth fish, the plesiosaur needed air to breathe and could not stay submerged indefinitely. There's no way a colony could go this long undetected. They would have been spotted when coming up for air. Of course, reportedly, the creature has been spotted multiple times. A true believer only has to be in the right place at the right time to catch it surfacing. Working off that argument, in February 1980, a delegate of the Loch Ness Monster Association tried to prove Morgwar's existence, not with magic and spectacle, but with cold, hard science. But predictably, the search ended empty-handed. Unlike dolphins and whales, scientists have been unable to track Morgwar, suggesting he's not an air-breathing creature. Even so, there are still members of the scientific community who believe the plesiosaur could have survived the extinction of the dinosaurs. In 2002, John Holmes, a former high-ranking scientific staffer at the Natural History Museum, claimed he filmed a morguar in the Gerrans Bay off the Roseland Peninsula near the southwestern tip of Wales. He reportedly shot the footage three years prior, but didn't disclose it for fear of ridicule. Holmes described the serpent as being about seven or eight feet long, with a slender, plesiosaur-like neck. He said, My pet theory is that it was a living fossil. I think there is a group of plesiosaurs going around the oceans of the world. Dr. Carl Schuker, a British zoologist, co-signed this theory. He suggested Morguar might be traced back to the Jurassic era and classified as a dinosaur. 
All that said, the majority of the scientific community sides with Adam Smith, the paleontologist who said plesiosaurs are extinct. But even still, there are animal species one might mistake for a dinosaur. In fact, there are three marine animals that reside near Cornwall, all of which bear a striking resemblance to Morguar. The giant oarfish, for example, has a recorded length of 36 feet long and can weigh as much as 600 pounds. While it's a fish, it looks more like a living piece of ribbon. Its body is narrow, almost flat, but very long from nose to tail. And like Morguar, it has a distinct way of moving in the water. The oarfish can swim vertically, so it can look like it's craning a long, goose-like neck. The giant oarfish lives at the bottom of the ocean, so sightings are infrequent. But when they do occur, it's reasonable for anyone to confuse one for Morguar. The conger eel is also found along the Cornish coast and can grow up to seven feet long. It's lengthy, scaleless, and has razor-sharp teeth, a powerful jaw, and a snout. However, the conger eel has a history of attacking humans. In 2013, one lunged at a diver and tore off a sizable chunk of his face. To the best of our knowledge, Morguar has never attacked a human, so it's unlikely anyone who had direct contact with it met a conger eel. The prime Morguar suspect is the basking shark. The second largest fish in the world looks like something out of a nightmare. It's grayish-black, grows up to 33 feet long, and can weigh over four tons. Most alarmingly, it has a massive gaping mouth with a total of 15 rows of teeth. And basking sharks have already been mistaken for Morguar. In 2010, near Cornwall, a photo appeared in the British Daily Mail, allegedly depicting a sea creature that many named the New Nessie. Instead, the director of the Center for Fortean Zoology identified the animal as a basking shark. Then in 2017, a couple discovered the carcass of a massive sea monster that washed up on a Cornish beach. They posted pictures on social media in hopes of identifying it. A lot of people guessed they were Morguar's remains, but photos imply it was another basking shark. It's also possible Morguar is a completely new species of fish yet to be identified by marine biologists. Either way, it feels safe to assume a lone dinosaur isn't patrolling the waters off Cornwall. But that doesn't make the legend of Morguar any less important. Folklore adds to local culture. It brings texture to the mundane. So long as we don't go overboard, there's no harm in passing on these stories, enjoying a little mystery. Tony Shields may not have conjured a sea monster back in 1976, but that doesn't mean the magic has to die. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We will be back next time with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember, 
Never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Brendan Hawkins with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Luther M. Mace, edited by Aaron Lan and Angela Jorgensen, fact-checked by Kevin Johnson, researched by Chelsea Wood, and produced by Bruce Katovich. Unexplained Mysteries stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Hi, I'm Carter Roy, host of the Spotify original from Parcast, Cold Cases. From burglary and arson to kidnappings and murder, explore the many types of crime, the many ways they remain unsolved, and how long it takes to find the answers, if ever. Catch a new episode of Cold Cases every Monday. Listen free only on Spotify. Spotify.